time. And it's, it's really a treat. Um, on, on Saturday, I, I spent the day at uh, a, a remarkable event in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts. Was anybody else there at Be the Being Human event? Ah, I, th I thought maybe somebody might be there. It was a large event. It was put on by uh, Peter Bauman. And it was titled, entitled Being Human. And essentially what it was was the Dharma presented as science. It was, it was stunning. These, it was a world-class people. They, they brought a philosopher from Germany, and they had Harvard and Stanford neuroscientists and a guy from Baylor, and it was, it was, uh, it was remarkable. And what was particularly uh, striking, uh, although they didn't point to it uh, specifically during the course of the day, um, was that the theme of the day of all of these scientists, the neurobiologists and the, the social scientists, the philosophers, was um, the explication of the Buddhist concept of anatta, or not-self. And I thought, my gosh, if Western science is embracing that, which is a concept that, that a lot of us have spent a lot of time trying to figure out just what it means, See, Buddha says it's one of the characteristics of, of existence, and we're all going, well, what is it? Um, and if Western science is embracing that, it's pretty amazing. It's one, it's one of the Buddha's more obscure teachings, and probably at the core of his insight. Um, and, dur and, and, and so I was particularly struck, because often... People say, you know, the, the Buddha Dharma is not compatible with the West as it is. It's hard to import, etc. And on the stage at the end, there were, it included John Kabat-Zinn and, uh, um, and a Rinpoche who, who made the same statement that the, the Dalai Lama, I've heard the Dalai Lama make, which is that if science disproves some... Um, you know, proposition of... Uh, Buddhism, uh, then it's time to give it up. And I thought, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's pretty interesting, uh, because you've got the, the science embracing religion and the religion embracing the science. I thought, what a remarkable thing to see. It was like, it was presented as like a series of TED Talks. So it was, you know, one after another of these people speaking for 20 minutes or so. And very stunning. Nobody used the word anatta. But I thought this was particularly important because, uh, and worth talking about, because in the Dharma scene today, we have um, Dharma discussions that uh, swirl around issues of the Eastern metaphysics that, that the Dharma has come to the West with. And some people are uh, comfortable, more than comfortable, um, believing some of the material that's come along with the Dharma, and some people are very uncomfortable being asked <coughs> to believe um, things that are essentially unprovable and unknowable. Some people f have come to the Dharma because they were fleeing uh, you know, some kind of request that people, that you adopt propositions that were not provable. Um, and what, I'm, what I want to do is to explore these two uh, kind, uh, the way these, it shows up in the Dharma discussions, uh, 
and at the end, I hope, make it clear that it doesn't matter whether you believe or not believe any of that stuff. The Dharma is for people who for, works whether you do or not. So I've given away the punchline. <laughs> so we can all go home. So, um, you know, there are, there are just uh, so many things that happen when you bring the, the Buddha Dharma tradition to the, to the West. How many people have sat in a room where somebody has said, if there's no self, uh, who gets reborn? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, I get asked that, I, I don't know, at least once a month uh, by somebody. You know. uh, the Buddha said the characteristics of, of, of existence or of experience are that they're radically impermanent. There's, there are no, actually, there are no things anywhere. There's just process. Everything is in the process of change at different... And because of that, um, any satisfaction is really not possible because just when things get good, well, it's downhill from there. Um, and because, because everything is process and there are no things, there's no entity called, there's no entity that is a self. They, the closest the people on Saturday came was, well, there was the, this guy Metzinger from Germany who stood up and said, by the end of my talk, I will have convinced you that there's no such thing as a self. So he actually did make that claim. But um, really what he came up with at the end was, the self is, a, is an idea we have of who we are. So he called it the self-model. And identities arise and pass away. Um, but but the, the, for, um, for a lot of the traditional dharma, there's this otherworldly component, which is reminiscent in some ways of, of other religious traditions. Um, the notion that... Um, there is something transcendent beyond our empirical experience. And it's what Stephen Batchelor calls God and his surrogates. You know. So Aristotle called, called it the unmoved mover. Um, you know, heaven and earth, God and, uh, and nature. In the East, emptiness and manifestation. Pure consciousness um, versus conditioned consciousness. Now, we, um, how would, you know, Nibbana is often described as something unconditioned. And actually, the Buddha says it's unconditioned. Well, Unconditioned, if you, if you read in, in, in the scripture, he says what he means by unconditioned is it's experience that is not conditioned by greed, hatred, or delusion. The three fires or poisons. And there are no articles in the Pali language, no the or and, so it's not the unconditioned, it's not a thing. But there's a sense somehow that Nibbana, when it's unconditioned, it's transcendent, um, and isn't, isn't, doesn't the story sort of go that if you uh, 
over the course of many lifetimes, if you perfect your, your behavior um, through practicing the precepts and cultivating the paramis, you will accumulate good karma or merit, and uh, uh, eventually creation, uh, conditions will be created that enable the, the, uh, the experience of nibbana. Isn't that sort of the story? No. And, and so it becomes this otherworldly thing in that, in that kind of context. And I know a lot of people who just don't know how to hold that. Some people embrace it. Um, we, get, we get that in, in Dharma teachings, too. And actually, it wasn't anything the Buddha taught, but haven't you heard the, the, um, the metaphor of the ocean and the wave? We're the waves and the ocean of the cosmos, and you know, the waves appear to be separate, but really they're just part of... You've heard that metaphor? You know. Uh, and it's, it's, it's taught in, in Dharma scenes, but it's not part of the Buddhist teachings. It's actually a, a Hindu, a, a Brahmanical um, notion. Brahman being, or Brahma being the spirit who, which suffuses all things, out of which all things arise and to which they all return. And because we are part of this oneness, each of us has that spark within us, right? reminiscent of the a soul. In, uh, uh, in, in Sanskrit, it was the Atman. And Atman is Brahman. And the liberation came with the realization for the Hindus that, that Atman is Brahman, that we are one with, with the cosmos. But the Buddha said, Anatta, no Atman. He was, he was particularly um, not otherworldly. Uh, he was very practical. Um, for him, consciousness, the way he described it, consciousness was a dependently arisen phenomenon. It occurs when conditions are appropriate. The notion of pure consciousness, which occurs in the Tibetan traditions particularly, that there is a consciousness in the cosmos um, that is independent of all manifested things that exist, whether or not things are manifesting or not. Um, not something that's in the in the earliest scriptures. Um, often I wonder. How we, would, how we would know, how we might know if there were such a thing that were permanent, that existed independent of our ability to perceive it, whether we could even know that. The Buddha said, all that we know comes through six sense doors, the five physical senses and the mind. And, you know, if, if you sat here for for 40 minutes or so this morning, you know that the mind doesn't sit still. <laughs> if, if the mind brushed up against something that was permanent, how would you know? You know? It, whatever, you know, it came and it went. And of course, the physical senses are the same, constantly, uh, constantly changing. But we can represent those things to ourselves with concepts. So we use concepts like, you know, pure 
pure consciousness, pure awareness. Some things get taught in the traditions multiple lifetimes that we have no access to. I remember Bhikkhu Bodhi describing, any of you seen that, uh, the Dharma wheel, the, the wheel of dependent origination as the five or six Dharma realms, the, the realm of the gods and humans and hungry ghosts and, and the hell realms and the, the titans and the heavenly realms. <clears throat> Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, was presenting that these things literally exist, but we cannot perceive them because our sensorium is not attuned to the dimensions in which they exist. Sort of like the way, you know, your AM radio won't bring in BBC shortwave. Of course, I don't think anything brings in BBC shortwave anymore. Didn't they abandon that? It's all just internet now, yeah. So, <laughs> but you get, you get the idea. I'm, I'm not sure how you would know. It's, it's a fact for him. Some in the West find it difficult to hold those and don't and, and the question then is what you know what do we what do we make of that 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 comes with uh, that comes to the West with the Dharma. <clears throat> I'm going to read a passage from the Kalama Sutta, which many of you have heard. It's one of the the discourses of the Buddha, the original out uh, of the original scriptures. The Buddha arrived in um, Kasaputta which is the home of the Kalamas, along with his entourage. It's hard to tell how many people were with him because they always say thousands, and I think, how can... There was no sound system. No, you know, how do you speak to a thousand people? So, so, I don't know, but... So he arrived with his entourage, and the people came out and met him and said, welcome. And they got into conversation and said something like... It's translated into uh, 21st century language. Um, there was a guy here last week who said, uh, he, you know, he knew what was going on and just, just his way was true and everything else was, was wrong. And you know, this Grove is booked next week and uh, we, we know the guy who's coming and he's going to say the same thing. So why should we listen to you? Why should we take what you say? You know. So these are, these are, recorded as the Buddha's words in response. He says, it's fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. It's fitting for you to be in doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about a perplexing matter. Come, Kalamas, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay. Do not go by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, or by a reflection on reasons. Don't go by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think this ascetic is our teacher. And then he said, but when you know for yourselves some, this thing that I'm about to do is unwholesome. These things are blamable. These things are censured by the wise. These things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. When you know for yourselves. And it's not just when you know anything for yourselves. He's not saying whatever fantasy you've got is, you know, 
saying when you know in your heart that what you're about to do is for the benefit, is intended for the benefit of yourself and others, then go forward with it. That doesn't depend on any cosmology or metaphysics at all. It's purely focused on your own, you know, your own experience uh, of your organism. And yet, you know, we do get in the tradition. Don't the Buddha says, don't don't take anything, you know, because it's in the oral tradition, and then the oral tradition says, multiple lives. <laughs> Take my word for it. Multiple Dharma realms, heaven realms, hell realms. So some people are uneasy with that. Uh, and because it, it, uh, um, because it comes to the West with that, um, with that kind of cultural clothing, um, it, does, it creates, there's the potential for spiritual hierarchies to, to emerge based on whether or not you've had access to those special states. Hmm. The, the Buddha said, right view, understanding impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the emptiness of self. Those are experiential. You can chase, he, he almost doesn't say, believe this. He's, he's saying, check it out. See, if it, see how deep these truths go. The Buddha, what the Buddha brought to the table just a few things that were new. Stephen Batchelor identifies a couple of them which are interesting. He points out that uh, um, the notion of, of personal independence was the Buddha's. You don't, you know, at the Brahmin's time, you would, in the, you know, in the Buddha's time, you would go to the Brahmin peace, priests for rites and rituals to help you in your life and, and presumably for consolation when that was appropriate. But you would, they would perform a ritual and, or rite of some kind for to make your, your, your cows fertile or to have a child or whatever. <laughs> um, Catholic Church does the same sort of thing. You know, you, you approach the the sacred elements through the, through the clergy, through the structure. But the Buddha said, it's, it's up to you, really, it's up to you. you know, there's no teacher, teachers can point in the direction and say, take a look. But for you to experience that, you have to do it yourself. It depends on a different, it's a different kind of, of conception in the West here, underlying the culture even if you're not taking it religiously, the notion of original sin is, is out there. You know, that somehow, essentially, we are impure, uh, corrupted somehow. Anybody have an inner critic going and telling them that's going on all the time? <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have, to have some, somebody in robes tell you that. You know, we've, it's, it's embedded. One of the points that people made on Saturday, our cultures are embedded in us. You know, our genetic inheritance is embedded 
you know, we're just that interface between our, our biological inheritance and, of course, the inheritance from the, the planet and back to the Big Bang. And we're that interface between you know, our inheritance and, and the environment. But in, in, in the East, the perception is often a little bit different. That is that we are essentially, not the Buddhist terms, but essentially pure, and the defilements come and visit. And that's what screws us up. And so, in that case, we don't need a savior. If you're, if you're corrupted somehow, defiled somehow, essentially, you need a savior, someone to help you. But if you are initially pure, then you're the one who needs to clean house. So independence, I mean, really, it's up to you. So you got to look at the teachings and say, is this helpful? Is this making, is this, is this um, attenuating the dukkha at all? He also, he also brought the mindfulness practice that, that we do. There was plenty of, of meditation going on at the time. But most of it was, or if not all of it, I don't really know, but most of it the Buddha talked about was, were, were concentration practices. And he quickly mastered those and said, wonderful, but you know, when you open your eyes, it's same old, same old. And uh, you know, he, was trying to, he was trying to find a solution to the problem of human suffering. And the mindfulness practice, which is basically a variety of ways of learning how to pay attention to ourselves and to what is going on in the organism so that when those impulses that arise that might, that the Buddha talked about, that might be for the detriment of oneself and others, that when those arise, one doesn't have to take them up. One notices them before they activate our, in, our, in our action. So we do that by being, by learning to be aware and present with the experience as it unfolds, or with experience as it unfolds. And he formulated his, his biggest insight, it was one insight spread over four, four truths. Four Noble Truths. Actually, it's, it's interesting um, to translate uh, Arya Sacha's Noble Truth is, is legitimate. But in the, in the Buddha's first uh, sermon, the first sutta, the, the first talk that he gave, he and formulated his insight as in the Four Noble Truths, each of the truths came with a task. So actually there are four tasks as well. And they're basically all aspects of the same first task, which is to understand dukkha, to understand the nature of suffering, of the dissatisfaction that is present in our lives, that underlies well, the, the big dissatisfaction is they won't go on forever. Um, so underlying everything, there's that one. Even if, even if, and that's not to say that there aren't good moments. But you know, it's not the script we would we would write. Um, first truth is to understand dukkha. Second truth is to abandon 
the origins, the causes, the conditions that give rise to dukkha. Well, if you understand dukkha fully, you under, understand the nature of dissatisfaction itself from, from simple annoyance and irritation through fury and anger, uh, fear and, and um, everything in between. You know, if you understood that, how that happens fully, you would also be under, you'd also understand the conditions which give rise to it. And I like to think that we're not stupid. Slow. But, <laughs> but not stupid. If we, if we get it once, you know, we get it. You know, once, I, I think the Flat Earth Society finally quit when they put a satellite up and they took a picture of the Earth from out there and there it was, you know, round. I think they were gone then, you know. Once, once, once you see the Earth from space, it's pretty hard to go back and think that it might be flat, right? Nobody's going to convince you that. And if you fully understood dukkha and the impulses that arise that lead to it in your own experience, in your own neurobiology, neuromusculature, we, you know, we're slow but not stupid. If we saw it, we would abandon it, those impulses, and we would realize the third truth, the third task is to realize the cessation of, of, of dukkha, of, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. And the fourth, the fourth of the, of the, of the uh, truths is the, the Eightfold Path, which is the way of being, uh, which, which, uh, cultivates, which cultivates the path. We can cultivate the path, but we also, if we were fully under, if we fully understood dukkha, we would, that's how we would live. We would live with right understanding. What he meant by right understanding or right view was to understand the Four Noble Truths. Anicca, dukkha, and nada, impermanence, dukkha, the four noble truths, and, and emptiness are not self. We'd understand it, our intentions, so right understanding would give rise to right intention. And that would, that would lead through speech, action, and livelihood that we're not going to um, cause to add more suffering, more dukkha, to, to our experience and the experience of others. And the, and the methodology is, of course, right mindfulness, right concentration, and right, and right effort, because wishing it is not enough. You actually have to, you know, that practicing the Dharma is not a sentimental um, kind of, of experience. You, you are to look at things as they are, to pay attention to how things are. And then that, that element of, of, of emptiness that he taught, the, the, um, the fact that everything is in process, and that, that clinging to or depending on anything you know, is bound to enhance suffering because everything's going to change. It's possible to obtain some relief when there is a deep, craving if you happen to get what you want. Often you don't, or my experience. 
Maybe you guys. Maybe somebody's always just getting the good stuff. Anybody here? But if everything is anicca and anatta, then there is no transcendent anything, or at least the Buddha isn't talking about it. You know, there are certainly some weird things that go on, and I'm, I, I'm my own position on transcendent elements, the unmoved mover, etc., is pretty agnostic. I just, I have no idea, and I have no idea how I could have an idea. So at this point, it's an idea. Um, and then, of course, um, the Buddha ethicized action. He made it um, the heart of, of uh, he made behavior an ethical issue in terms of whether or not it adds to the suffering in the world or not. And so, you know, he, present, he presented the precepts as a form of uh, practicing with speech, action, and livelihood as a, as a um, method of keeping in mind um, the ethical dimension of behavior. It's a mindfulness practice, really. You know, because for any one of those, any one of those precepts about speaking falsely, these aren't, these aren't um, for the Buddha intention, right? Intention was the issue. Right speech. No false speech. Well, you know, if the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here, do you say, you got me? <laughs> you know, she's behind, up in the attic behind the fake bookcase, you know? And, and I've heard people who want to maintain that you've always got to tell the truth. You know, well, you've got to finesse that one. And I'm thinking, yeah, like, this guy's not going to know. Uh, who are you talking about? You know, just, you just say no. I think that's what I think I would do, but who knows? Um, so for each of the each of the the precepts are not absolute rules; they're signposts, they're alert moments, you know, places where, because of our genetic, biological inheritance, we tend to act out. I mean, there's, you know, what are the biological imperatives? Survive, reproduce. Pretty much. You know. So not, you know, <coughs> not, not striking at other beings, first pre precept. Um, not taking what's not freely given. Well, you know, there are situations where y you might act to restrain somebody who's causing some damage. Take something that's needed in an emergency without being given permission. You know, even the even the precepts about uh, drugs and alcohol. I mean, anybody who's worked with with uh, hospice situations knows there are times, there are conditions in which um, heedlessness. Not, not really the problem, <laughs> you know. And of course, the third precept, which is usually translated as uh, uh, restraint from sexual misconduct, really the word is kamesu, which means sensual. Uh, 
misconduct. So not respond, you know, it's a practice of not responding to our dissatisfaction by trying to indulge in. To, to understand the coming and going of the dissatisfaction. So it applies to uh, comfort food as well as TV and, as, and, and sexuality. All of, all of sensual indulgence. You know. so these are practices that don't depend on being good because what you find is actually happiness comes with, you know, living in accord. I, sometimes people, uh, uh, when we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion, people say, well, how do you know when you, if you, how would you know if you were deluded? <laughs> um, so, you know, what's a, what's a marker for that? And so that, you know, I, I was batting that around for some years, and Ajahn Pasano, who, who is uh, the abbot up at Abhay Giri, he suggested that if you're suffering, then there's delusion. And I thought, and that was, I spent some time thinking, well, that, that sounds pretty good. And then I realized, we don't know when we're suffering. You know, we're in a situation, most of us, been down so long, it looks like up to me. <laughs> who? Wasn't there a book in the 60s, something? Was it, was it Terry Southern or anybody know? Ben, you know. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, Richard Farina. Um, been down so long. It's like when you're sitting at home, you know, and the refrigerator goes off, and all of a sudden it gets quiet, and you go, gee, I didn't realize it was on. You know, the air conditioner's going, and we're sitting, and we're, you know, and all of a sudden it goes off, and you go, wow, it's quiet now. Didn't you all notice that? It's the same sort of thing. We don't even notice the underlying unease that, that, that permeates. So what's a, what's, a, uh, what's a marker for dukkha? How would we recognize dukkha in an objective way that we don't have to, you know, is, am I suffering? Is it unpleasant? Is it pleasant? Maybe if you work with the second foundation, is this experience pleasant, unpleasant? Sometimes, you know, it's not so clear. Sometimes it's both. <laughs> you know, because you got, this is one of the points that uh, David Eagleman was making. You know, it, there's brain circuitry over here that's saying, that cake looks really good. And brain circuitry over here is saying, oh, that's too many calories. Well, which is you? Well, neither is you. <laughs> You got two different sets of circuits going, you know, one that wants some short-term payoff and one that, that is like, like Ulysses strapped himself to the mast so that he could hear the sirens, <laughs> but not be, he knew, he knew it was going to happen. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so how do we, how do we recognize dukkha? And I thought about that for a long time, because really, what the Buddha said was, I teach suffering in the end of suffering. All the metaphysical stuff, multiple lives, karma. You know, karma is uh, taught as, um, let me say something about this, because this is actually pretty interesting. When the Brahmins would do the rituals, they did it for rain or 
fertility or for success in business, and they, they pronounce the mantras at the right pitch and for the right length of time and the right sequence and perform the various motions. And, and the idea was you would get some payback from the cosmos. And the word that was used to describe that performance of ritual is karman in Sanskrit. And um, the Buddha flipped the meaning of that. He said, yeah, karma determines um, the, the order of the universe, but he said, it's not what you do, it's the intention that you bring to what you're, to what you're doing. And, and at that same moment, although he didn't spell it out, it sort of changes the way the payback is going to come. It's not what happens to you. I've heard people say that karma, if you were standing on the beach in Sri Lanka when the tidal wave came, that was your karma. There's, there's even a, a, a sutta, where, where, um, which I think was inserted a bit later, um, well, you know, it's a 2,500-year game of telephone, right? <laughs> and, and in that transmission, there's been some static. So there's a sutta where, you know, if you're, if you're poor today, it's because you were stingy in your last life. You know, that kind of stuff. But really, if intention, and the Buddha was explicit, karma isn't karma, is intention. If it's intention then the payoff isn't what happens to you, it's what you turn yourself into. Buddha said what the mind regularly attends to becomes its inclination. So if you, if you cultivate love, you wind up inheriting that. If you cultivate perfection, you're going to find yourself frustrated and irritated <laughs> a lot of the time. But what you, are, what you are doing, the karma, the fruits of karma, are in yourself, what you turn yourself into. It's empirical. You know, if you grumble a lot, um, you, you start to grumble, up, you grumble more. So I'm, I'm thinking, so it's a slightly different take on karma that doesn't require multiple lifetimes. The payoff is right away in this life we get what we've made ourselves into. So how do we recognize dukkha? Well, the, the thought that came to me was complaint. One of, the under, one, of the, one of the translations of the word dukkha is dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness. What's going on with the complaint? There's some dissatisfaction. Something is, not, something is unsatisfactory, and what we're doing is projecting it out there. You know, we're not happy with this. It's wrong. And it doesn't mean that some complaints aren't justified. It's not saying anything about true or false, right or wrong. The Buddha said he taught suffering and the end of suffering, dukkha and the end of dukkha. He didn't say he taught you know, worldviews or how to be good or 
that's for us to discover it, you know, um, personal independence and personal responsibility. It, it's up to us. But complaint is a great marker. Complaints can be trivial. They can be major. And they reflect our dissatisfaction. They are markers for dukkha. Not that I'm complaining about complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with complaints. It's just that dukkha inhabits them. They're, they are a manifestation of our uh, dissatisfaction of our suffering. Some of them can be huge. Some of them can be trivial. Some of them can be righteous. Some of them can be venal. Some of them can, they can be anything. The question is, how do we resolve the complaints? And sometimes it takes to resolve that complaint. You know, it's the story of the, the, the old Dharma story of the king who uh, stubbed his toe and, and uh, called his ministers together and said, obviously, cover my kingdom with leather so I don't stub my toe anymore. And the wise man, how wise do you have to be, said, you know, why don't we just make some shoes and then you won't stub your toe? So how do, we, how do we relate to the complaint? We see things wrong in the world. How do we hold that? How do we resolve that complaint? Because the opposite, or the absence of complaint, the absence of all complaint, would be contentment. And, you know, contentment's not a big cultural value. <laughs> I mean, I'm not content with my iPhone 4S, you know. <laughs> Where's the 5? Um, you know, it's, the culture really doesn't, doesn't uh, culture contentment. But contentment and equanimity without complaint would be equanimity in the face of when unpleasant experience arises, it's unpleasant experience. When we complain about unpleasant experience, then we suffer. And that complaint is just a, a, a projection of it. So the question is, how do we resolve the complaints? Complaints usually, as far as I can find in my own experience, they're all based in ideas about how things should be, and they should be different. Mm -hmm. However they are, they should be different, right? I mean, the Supreme Court should be going 5-4 the other way, mm -hmm. you know? Or if not 9 nothing. <laughs> now, what's reasonable here? Complaints. How do we... How do we Resolve those complaints. If we're believing some idea about the way things should be, we're clinging, in effect, to that idea, to that thought. Now, clinging, clinging isn't something, actually, that we do. Remember, anatta. 
if there's um, no entity here, there's no entity to cling. Clinging happens. Emotions happen. My gosh, life happened. Anybody plan it? I mean, we just turned up, right? <laughs> I was, if, I, if I was in on the planning, I didn't have any idea. <laughs> you know. well, these things happen. Clinging happens when conditions are right. And some of that has to do with issues when fear arises. You know, one of the things that... Uh, <clears throat> David Eagleman, he was talking about, he says, you know, this, the most, the most, let me put it this way, a cubic centimeter of brain matter has more neurons in it than there are stars in the Milky Way. There are more potential, there are more potential connections between neurons in the human brain than there are particles of matter in the entire universe. The most complex thing we've ever found is us. And yet, the conscious part is so little. I can... <laughs> it's, and it's littler than that. It's, I can reach down and pick up this pen. I'm not thinking about all the neurons firing in the arm to make the muscles contract, and I can actually put it in my pocket. I'm not, you know, the ice cream goes in the mouth, not in the middle of the forehead. I mean, we, and we don't even perceive things that aren't relevant to us. The data comes in. You can be, you can be in a party and there's rumble of talk and all of a sudden you hear the word kill and you go, or your name and you're, right? Just, but it's been processing all along. You know, it, you, you've been hearing it, but you, the conscious part of our mind hasn't been conscious part is for resolving some of these, do I eat the cake or not? <laughs> no. So we need to learn to recognize what it, what it is we, you know, what we're clinging to. We cling to things that we think will keep us safe, maybe out of habit, maybe because they will keep us safe. You know, or that will give us pleasure. Um, and some things we cling to out of habit. Clinging arises, not that we cling to it, but clinging arises sometimes when conditions are right out of habit. And one of the guys at this conference said, you know, there's a moment, you've got about, and, I, and he, was, he, was, uh, was, um, he was talking really fast at this point, and his head went down, and he said, you've got, I think he said 300 milliseconds between the time when the impulse to act arises and before it launches itself through your organism. Our mindfulness practice, what that's for is to learn to recognize that spot and then when these things arise that will make things worse, we don't fall for them. We don't fall for the pie in the sky or whatever the promise or fear the hope or fear might be. We learn to recognize that. And in that sense, all of this, you know, awakening can, can occur, awakening and, and acting in accord with the Dharma can occur within this empirical realm. It doesn't require, you know, um, 
some cosmology of multiple lifetimes that we're going to get better eventually. You know, there'll be a payoff later in some otherworldly sense. It's all practical in this world. It has to do with our dissatisfaction, with our complaints. So you rephrase the Four Noble Truths. These are complaints. These are the origin of complaints. <laughs> the cessation of complaints. And the path leading to the cessation of complaints. Or the path which is, which is lived by those who no longer complain. And as a practical matter, that makes sense. That's something you, you can actually work on. Whereas building merit for the next incarnation, and that's, you know, that's out there in the Dharma world. I went into the, there's a, a Buddhist bookstore in Van Ness that I went into and I bought a bell. And the woman behind the counter, very young, and she asked me if I knew how to use the bell. <laughs> I think she had some ritual kind of thing in mind, you know. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I think I can. She said, well, you want to do this because it, you know, we, we want to get a better lifetime next time. <laughs> so that's out there. You know, it's not that it's not, you know, all of this is all intermixed. But what I wanted to do this morning was to just clarify some of that. First of all, that the Dharma doesn't depend, the Buddha Dharma does not depend on any of that. There's nothing wrong with any of that. And for people who, for whom that makes sense and, and doesn't lead to suffering, not a problem. But for people who can't, don't know what to do with this multiple lifetime karma business and the to see to heavens and, you know, it's not necessary either. It's learning to work with our own complaints to resolve them without needing to cover the world, to make the world after our pattern of the way we think things should be. And it will run you right up against some of your deepest beliefs about how things should be and how you should be. So I wanted to offer, the, I wanted to offer that as, a, um, as just as a vision of the Dharma that doesn't depend on... Western or non-Western cosmologies, and and just you know this this thing on Saturday was amazing. Western cosmologies can fully embrace the Dharma, and the the you know the Dharma can embrace uh, the kind of uh, Western scientism and thought in which we've all been cultured, to some extent or other. Well, there's no discord. So I could end with, you know how they end in the Catholic Church? So I, I could sort of take that little and say, go forth and complain no more. Let me ask if there are any questions or comments or anything in the last few minutes we've got here. Please. I always get this, you know, I'm listening to you and going, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I get to a point when you talk about complaints and the opposite of complaint is being content. 
and I get this feeling inside and I'm going, no, the opposite of complaint is complacency. And, and, it, it, and it, it makes me feel uncomfortable that if this uneasiness about what's going on mm -hmm. doesn't arise, then we take no action. Mm. There's a, I'm sorry. There's a tendency to think that we won't, that we might not act if we didn't have a complaint. But complacency, I hear a complaint there. <laughs> it's not that we don't take action. If you see, at a, at a basic level, if you, if you come across a baby crying, you pick it up. You, some, you know, a child is lost in the zoo, you go and you say, can I help? You know, you, the, the response to help immediately arises in, in the presence of suffering. But it doesn't mean that we have to conjure, and we can, but we don't have to complain about it. We can recognize global warming is a problem. It's a problem because of certain kinds of behaviors, and we can work with that, but we, that's the way things are. The world is the way it is, whatever we think about it. It's, it is. We don't like some of it, we like other parts, it doesn't matter. The parts we like, somebody else doesn't like. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's something trivial like a TV show or whether it's like, you know, the healthcare program or whether it's like, I mean, it doesn't matter what it's like. It doesn't keep you from acting. We act out of compassion, not out of aversion and anger. I think if you act out of anger, you're probably going to get a response that's not um, what you want. It's not, it's not often that you get what you want out of anger, although it's venting, you know, so we feel better. Relief, temporary relief, there's no underlying satisfaction there. So the Buddha is concerned about dukkha and the end of dukkha, complaining and the end of complaining. Not that we, you know, not that we don't do things to make things better. Hmm. Yeah. I think of it as seeing the whole picture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you see the whole picture, then, uh, then you'll see how everything interrelates and how <coughs> it is the way it is, mm -hmm. and then you can decide what a, uh, a skillful action might be. Right. When you're talking, I'm thinking about a story that I read during um, the Pol Pot era in, Cam in, uh, in uh, Cambodia. Didn't they change I was trying to think of what they changed the name, Kampuche. Yeah. They had, they had a hate in where they got, got, a whole bunch of people got in the middle of the stadium and they hated the West. And I thought, well, that's really what a great display of dukkha. <laughs> and it didn't produce anything except it cranked them up. Yeah. yeah. Seminar or? The, I think so. I, 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 I think so. Um, he said 
in, as he walked off the stage, see you for being human 2013. Mm -hmm. So I think it may be a program, it was sold out, and it sold out early. And I thought, because I looked at the, I looked at the, uh, the list of the, you know, the program, and, uh, or the menu, and thought, um, this is about science. And then I got John Kabat-Zinn down there, and it's got this Rinpoche, you know, tagged on at the end. But all these other people were, they were scientists. I mean, they're, you know, from Harvard and Stanford, they were, I mean, it was impressive. But it turned out, at one point, I mean, who was in the audience? It was a group like this, because somebody asked how many people in the audience, and this is, if you've been to the, to the Palace of Fine Arts Theater, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the city, and it was, it was a relic when I grew up in the 50s. Now, now it's just beautiful. Um, how many people have a daily meditation practice? And two-thirds of the people in the audience put up their hands. So people were there hearing, they were there for the Dharma, and what they heard was science was just spectacular. Mm -hmm. and, and I think they've got a website, you can, it's Being Human. If you Google Being Human 2012, you get their website, and then you'd find all their plans and stuff. So thank you, and as I suggested, go forth and complain no more. <laughs> cling, or cling, cling no more, if you prefer cling. <laughs> but, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you.